Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of conversations about law practice. Each week, we talk with legal entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are your hosts. Hi, I'm Sam Glover, and this is episode 226 of The Lawyer's Podcast. We are part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, I'm talking with Jason Freed, the founder of Basecamp, about what it means to be a calm company, why you've probably got productivity backwards, about remote work and accountability, and his new book, It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. Today's podcast is brought to you by Arag, Ruby Receptionist, Litify, and Text Expander. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support. Please stay tuned. We'll tell you more about them later on. So this month, we're focusing on marketing. And today, I want to talk about your plan. What is your strategy? What's your plan? How are you intending to go about getting clients? And how are you going to measure that and decide whether or not it's working so that you can tweak it and improve it over time? Because that's the core of what your marketing plan should be. Spoiler, it doesn't matter what your marketing plan is. It matters that you have one and that you're constantly measuring, evaluating, and improving it. So whatever you think it is, how are you going to measure the value? For example, if your marketing plan is based around networking, you should be measuring the time that you're putting into it and putting a value on that time, the expense of it. How much time are you spending in the car, at lunches, delivering seminars, preparing for seminars, and what would that work out to in terms of value? How do you value that time? Come up with a number. It can be your billable time number or it can be something else, but how do you value that time? And then how many clients are you getting from that? Because what you're trying to come up with here is what is your cost of acquiring a client in this way? What's the cost of acquiring maybe a lead or a potential client is also a piece of this. And then maybe you want to track it to the end. How much is the value of those cases or at least put an estimate on it so that you can figure out like what is the value of the time that you're putting in? What is the value of the clients that you're getting? And what basically is the return on the investment of that time that you're putting in and that and that expense that you're putting in? And then compare it to something else. So if you were going to do Yellow Pages ads, which I hope you probably aren't doing in 2019, but I'm sure it works for somebody or you're taking out Google ads, or you're working on Facebook, or you're putting time into Twitter, what's the corresponding return on investment of that time and effort? And are you getting better clients from one versus the other? It's not enough to go with a gut, like try and put a measurement on it so that you can actually figure this out. Because there's a cycle here, right? If you're going to experiment on Twitter, it takes time to learn how to do it right. And then you do it. So you do your experiment, you measure your results. How many leads are you getting? How many clients are you getting? What's the value of the clients that you're getting? And then you evaluate, you know, how does this look? How could we maybe improve this and do it better next time? Or is it just not worth doing at all? And then use what you've understood to try something else. If Twitter didn't work, maybe you want to try, you know, marketing to your local Better Business Bureau next time. Or maybe you want to try LinkedIn and see if that gets you different results. Maybe it's YouTube time. I don't know. Or maybe it's time for blogging or doing promotions in your community, whatever. And then once you have a couple of different things, you can start comparing. Well, maybe your networking time is probably a huge time suck that you're not currently accounting for because it feels free because it's just time to some people. But maybe you get really high value clients out of that too. And so maybe that's really worth focusing on. For other lawyers, that's probably not going to be it. But then how can you improve that? If you got three potential client referrals out of a group of 50 lawyers that you spoke to, how can you get 10 out of 50 lawyers next time? And so you want to continually be trying to figure out how can you improve this? How can you get more out of the time and the money that you're spending? So just kind of rinse and repeat, right? Just experiment, measure your results, evaluate them, and then come up with a way to try and do better. That's what a marketing plan really is. It's not 
something that you put together once and then just execute and never change. It's a constantly evolving thing that you keep working on and keep trying new things. And the one admonishment that I'll make is make sure you're trying things well. It's not enough to just dip your toe. Like, let's say you're going to try Twitter. I've posted about this before. There are some really amazing examples of lawyers whose tweet threads, their entire Twitter feed is just, if you've been injured in an accident, call the law firm of Smith, Smith and Smith. And that's just a terribly ineffective way to use Twitter, period but definitely ineffective for getting clients. So before you try something, make sure you're trying it well, because otherwise it's not a meaningful experiment, right? So experiment well, and then measure your results, evaluate and repeat and improve iteratively over time, which isn't actually all that off the subject of today's interview, because I think you're going to find Jason Fried saying some similar things about the way his team has built Basecamp. And it's going to be a really enlightening thing. And I think you're going to take a lot of ideas away from it and from his book. But first, we've got a brief sponsored conversation with Reuven Moskowitz from Litify, and then we'll hear my conversation with Jason Fried. Hi, my name is Reuven Moskowitz. I'm the founder and CEO of Litify. Litify is a practice management solution built on Salesforce that helps law firms and lawyers operate more efficiently. And if you'll indulge me for a minute, Litify is intake, client and matter management, document assembly, and more, right? Yes. It's everything a lawyer needs to run their firm from intakes to marketing to transparency, client communications, document management, finance. So really a wall-to-wall solution for law firms to really be able to run their firm efficiently. Very cool. So why should firms invest in technology? What's the point? Great question. I think that when you think about how lawyers should or shouldn't invest in technology, it's, it's really about, especially for small law firms, about investing in themselves. And the more they could focus on what they do best and why we all went to law school. I went to law school and really what you learn in school is how to provide excellent service to your clients and provide for a really great offering. And the more you could invest really in yourself by having these tools that could both help you do your your service more efficiently so you're not really bogged down by some of the admin, but also maybe even provide for a better service, that's really where technology can help you and enable you to do that. And one of those pieces, right, is that consumers, by which we mean potential clients, just have a different set of expectations than they might have 10, 15, 20 years ago. Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, today, think about just yourselves, even even not as a lawyer, but as, as a consumer of different products and your expectations. When you call to speak to your airline, when you, when you order something, you want to know what you're getting, what the details around it are. You want transparency throughout the process. You want to know, is it going to be here in three minutes? Is it going to be here in one minute? You know, when is my flight going to be rescheduled? And that, that kind of sensation that, that consumers have really globally around all service is probably heightened when they need a lawyer. It's something that they're not, they don't have expertise in. Maybe they're not even doing it that often, engaging with a lawyer, but they still bring those same kind of expectations around, hey, I need to know that you're available. Hey, I really want to understand the process. Hey, I want you to give me more transparency, transparency into the work that you're doing to where the project is up to, to where the case is up to, to how much you're billing me and why I'm getting billed certain things. So those kind of expectations that people are developing throughout their lives and they're just day to day, they're bringing those same expectations and maybe even have that heightened sense of this is what we need and this is how we expect this service to be delivered. And and that's really pouring in and you're seeing, you know, lawyers and law firms have that kind of demand from the consumers. And think about again just how you as a user of these different products across your daily lives, how your expectations have thus changed. 
You mentioned availability in passing, but I think that's another piece of it too. Like I'm used to being able to find out information about just about everything at all times. Yeah, sometimes stores are closed, but they usually have websites where I can order things if I want to. It strikes me that being able to provide some kind of availability to your clients at all times is another big piece of that. Absolutely. And I think that what your client wants is availability. They want access. They want to understand what you're doing. And, and it's almost like they want to be part of the process. But like you mentioned, how, how do you provide that sense of accessibility, but you can't actually be available to your clients all the time? Mm-hmm. So there are tools that enable you to do that, whether it's proactive communication, whether it's SMS that enables them to maybe not have your personal information, your personal contact, but you get the feeling you, you enable them with these different tools that allows them to feel, yes, you know, my lawyer is always there. They're available for me. They're giving me these different channels to communicate with them on. But at the same time, preserving the sanity, but also preserving the ability for Lord to do their job because if they're just answering these calls and for access and just servicing that part of the demand, they won't even be able to deliver their service. So it's that balance that I think technology really enables lawyers to really provide that with quality. So if you'd like to learn more about how Litify can help you with transparency, availability, and be a part of your firm's tech stack, visit litify.com. That's L-I-T-I-F-Y.com to get a free ebook, Metrics That Matter, and learn more about Litify, or you can just click the link in the show notes. Thanks so much, Reuven. Thank you, Sam. Hey there, my name is Jason Freed, and I'm the CEO at Basecamp in Chicago, although we're also based all over the world. Hi, Jason. Thanks so much for being on the podcast today. My pleasure. Maybe we should start by talking about Basecamp, both the company and the product. And it used to be called 37 Signals, right? That's correct. Yeah, we switched back in about 2014, back over to Basecamp. Remind me what 37 Signals meant. Yes. Yeah, so well, we started the business back in 1999, and we we're looking for a name. And one of my original business partners was watching Nova on PBS. Hmm that science show. And there was a show about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And it turned out that out of the billions and billions of signals that we've been listening to in space for signs of intelligent life, there were 37 signals that were unexplained and potential signs of intelligent life. And he just picked up on that and said, 37 signals, that's just cool. That's just something cool about that. And the domain name was available. We didn't have a name for the business. <laughs> uh, so we said, hey, let's do that. We're a little bit different. Let's try that. Let's go for it. And uh, so that's what it meant. Very cool. I thought I had learned before, but that sounds totally new to me. That's awesome. <laughs> How big is the company now? We have 54 people in the company, 14 of which are in Chicago. And then the other 40 or so are in about 30 some odd different cities around the world. How do you split that up? I mean, I assume you have the software development teams, team or teams, and then there's, I assume, support and admin. And how's that kind of balance out? Yes, yeah, so we have uh, programmers, we have designers. I can give you rough numbers because yeah, some people do different numbers. things, <laughs> right? But like we've got about, let's call it 10 programmers. We've got about six, seven designers. Again, some people are sort of hybrids. Mm-hmm. We've got about seven people in the technical operations team. They're in charge of keeping the servers on and keeping the lights on, that kind of stuff. We have an admin group of two people, people ops, payroll, that kind of stuff. Uh, customer service, I think there's 15, maybe 16 people on that team now. Uh, we have a data analyst. Uh, we have two people who run our podcast and do some video work and some other stuff, some other writing. And then there's a few other roles that are sort of uh, hybrid roles. So mm-hmm. you could call them programmers. You can call them systems engineers. We have a team called SIP, which is Security Infrastructure and Performance. 
and there's three or four people, depending again how you count on that team. They're programmers also, but they have a slightly different focus. So that's essentially, I don't know what that actually truly adds up to, but we have 54 people and that's kind of the the groups. Those are the groups. The title of the book, your most recent book is It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work, which follows rework, I think. There wasn't a book in between those, was there? There was a book called Remote. Well, that's right. But It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work is really the spiritual follow-up to rework. Yeah. Okay. We'll obviously include the link in the show notes. It's a collection of learnings and we'll be talking about similar things. So when I talk about the book, that's usually the one I'm talking about. The reason I was asking about the size of the company and the different departments is A, because I like to geek out on how things are put together. But B, when you talk about, say, your six-week sprints, two weeks off in the book, I'm wondering... Does that apply to every department at the company or do some work differently? We're trying to get everybody on that cycle, Mm -hmm. uh, the six-week cycle. It currently definitely applies to product development, which is iOS, Android, desktop, web. And then our data analyst runs on that schedule. Mm -hmm. Some marketing work runs on that schedule. Operations doesn't really run on that schedule. Sometimes they try, but then, you know, that job is tricky because it's really about, in many cases, dealing with things that come up unexpectedly. So that's a little bit hard to be on that. But they have projects that sort of run on that schedule. Customer service doesn't really run on that schedule. They make announcements. We make announcements internally. Like every group in the company makes an announcement every six weeks about what the team's basically working on right now. And so there's, there's a certain cadence that everybody follows. But in terms of actual product development work or product work that has a beginning and an end, some teams just have more of that than others teams. Cool. I might dig into that a little bit more later. I think, you know, it's easy to read the book and, you know, then look over at your accounting department and wonder how you apply that there. So I think I want to touch on that, but I I don't want to go without talking more about Basecamp, the product. It's project management software, or for lawyers, it would be very similar to law practice management software. But I'm curious, Jason, what, like when you, (laughs) I realize that your culture is not one of selling, but if you had to pitch Basecamp, what would be kind of the distinguishing feature or the major selling point for your customers, do you think? Yeah, the way I always do this is I don't have a standard pitch Mm -hmm. because I think when you have a standard pitch, you pretty much water it down for everybody. So for me, I'm always, if someone's going to ask me that question, I would say like, you know, what do you do and what do you struggle with? You know, let's say, you're a design firm or something, you go, well, you know, we're using email back and forth with our clients. I'm losing things. Things are slipping through the cracks. Like, I don't know who's working on what. I'm, I feel like I'm bugging people all the time or I'm the bottleneck. And I go, ah, okay. So in that case, Basecamp is a place to have every, like you basically have a central source of truth. Every discussion, every approval, every file, every task for every person who's working on the project will be stored centrally inside Basecamp. You can see what everyone's working on. Everybody knows what they need to do. If you need to ask the team a question, you know where to do that. If you need to look up something that was discussed before, you know where to do that. If you need a file to find out what the latest version of this is or that is, you know where to get that. So it's really about that. But if you're a publisher, the answer might be different. Or if you're a lawyer, the answer might be different. So I always kind of look at it that way. But fundamentally, if I had to really kind of completely generalize, it is a set of tools There's about six or seven key tools in Basecamp that every team needs to work together. So you need a way to communicate across the team or the company in slow time, which is more like email, and also in real time, which is more like chat. So we have both of those. You need a place to keep track of all the files and deliverables and documents that anyone needs who's working on a particular project. You need a place to keep track of schedules. When are things due? You need a place to keep track of the work that's in progress. Who's responsible for what? Where are we? What status? You know, how far along are we? What's left to do? That kind of stuff. 
And then you also need to kind of check in on people and people need to do this themselves. Like, what are you working on this week? What did you do last week? You need sort of a sense of a, a, a cadence that's going, not just date-based, but actually in people's own words, what did they do this week? What did they do today? That sort of thing. So all those tools live in one place. And typically what people have to do is assemble a suite of separate tools. They'll use some other product for chat and some other product for file sharing and some other product for email and some other product for calendaring. And then you have seams because these products don't truly really fit together. They all have different interfaces. They have different onboarding. They have different logins. They have different prices. And it's just a total mess, especially for small companies, small law firms, small businesses. They don't have time to shop for four or five or six different pieces of software and think about how to integrate them all. So Basecamp is one-stop shop for all the things that any team needs to work together. Long answer, I know. No, no, like, that's, you know. I get it. it. When I talk to companies that build software solutions in particular, you know, there's the plain, like, what is it? Well, it's project management software. But then it's like, what distinguishes it? And I think you've addressed that well. So yeah, let's pivot to the book. And the title of the book is It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. And you have the disclaimer up front that you're not trying to talk about mental illness, <laughs> which I think right. is, is the important. We're talking about the colloquial use of the word crazy. And then the opposite of that is calm. And, and that's really what the book is about, is how to build a calm company. And maybe you should say more about what you mean by that. Sure. So, you know, the reason we kind of wrote this book is because I you know, have a lot of friends who, who well, everybody I know works, basically. And you just kind of, <laughs> you know, casually say, how's it going? You know, how, how's work or whatever? And everyone's like, it's crazy at work. It's crazy at work. And I, and I just kept hearing that. And I kept wondering, what does that mean and why? Like, why? And why is that acceptable? I mean, it's, it's like a badge of honor to say that you're busy and it's crazy and stuff, right? That too. And that's another thing that I didn't understand is that people would sort of say it and they'd mean it in two ways. One is like, oh, it's overwhelming, but also like, it's crazy at work. I'm just so busy. This, you know, like I'm so important in this whole thing. And I just kept hearing it. And, and David, my business partner and co-author kept hearing it. And we just kept hearing it. It's like, we got to do something about this because that's not how we feel about work. Work does not need to be always on. You don't need to be working 24-7. You certainly don't need to be putting in 10, 12-hour days. Eight hours is plenty of time, and 40 hours a week is plenty of time. And what's the rush all the time? And why is everyone running around with their hair on fire? And why are we always missing deadlines? Not we, but why are generally people always yeah. missing deadlines? And why do people hate deadlines? And why do people feel like they don't believe deadlines? And like all these things are to layer up. And then you start to ask people, well, well tell me why it's crazy. You're like, well, I have no time at work. I'm there all day. But I, at the end of the day, I feel like I got nothing done, even though I've been busy all day. And you start to hear about all this stuff. Then you dig in and you realize that people are just distracted and interrupted all day long, either by chat or phone calls or conference calls or meetings. And they're being pulled in a bunch of different directions. And they don't actually have time to do their work. So our feeling is that companies should be calm and not crazy. And calm should mean everybody has a full, pretty much as full a day as possible to themselves. That doesn't mean they work in isolation. It means that, you know, they're working with teams, but they're in control of their schedule. They know how much time they have, and they have long stretches of uninterrupted time to get work done versus being bounced around every 15, 20 minutes, having to jump back and forth between this and that and multitasking and the whole thing. So that's a big part of it. Calm is about, from the top, the owners of the company respecting and protecting people's time and attention. Because I can't expect people to work calmly if I'm pushing them, changing my mind constantly, asking them to do things that are completely unreasonable, figuring out or like, you know, thro throwing deadlines in that don't make sense, layering on work that's supposed to do Friday and then Thursday I double the work. Like 
I can't do these things as an owner, as a manager, as a boss, and then expect people to work calmly. So I have to take this into consideration myself. I mean, I guess it's kind of a manifesto on work-life balance because that that's kind of a bullshit term that gets thrown around a lot and nobody really understands what it means. And it sounds like you've got work on one side of the scale and life on the other side of the scale. And so you can't, they're like always in tension or something like that. Yeah. But if you think about a scale, which is a good metaphor, both sides of a scale can push back, like technically. You throw mm-hmm. more weight on one and it pushes the other one up or down or whatever. You take weight off, down, whatever. The thing is, is that typically in most people's lives these days, life is not allowed to push back at work. Work is the only one that's allowed to layer on the weight. Right. And so I think the balance part is important here. Balance doesn't mean you just get your weekends to yourself. That's like, that's not enough. You should go home at five or six and like have your nights to yourself and and not be expected to answer any emails or messages or questions at nine o'clock or 10 o'clock, unless there's a true, legitimate, true emergency, which should happen, you know, once or twice a year, if you're unfortunate enough to even have one at all. But I think we've turned everything into this. There's a sense of urgency around everything and everything's an emergency. And so everyone's always on. It's just really unhealthy. And life takes the brunt of the beating. Work never, I shouldn't say never, but almost almost never. Can you gently push back at work and go, no, I'm not going to do that. And work's like, okay, that's cool. No problem. No, instead <laughs> it's like, I, we need this. We need this. We need this. And that's just, it's unfair and unfortunate. And I think also unhealthy and unsustainable too over the long term. But it also kind of sets up work as evil. And like, I love my job. I love the work we do. I love solving the problems that come up in work. And I, I've started saying maybe we should be talking about like work-life harmony because mm-hmm. like, I don't want to stop myself from having great ideas in the shower. Sure. <laughs> That's one of the reasons I take showers is so that I can solve problems at work while I'm not really paying attention to them. By the way, me too. And you know why that is? It's interesting. It's like, why do you think you're able to, to solve problems in the shower? It's quiet. I mean, there's white noise. It's just you. You cannot be interrupted. You cannot be distracted. There's no other work near you. And it actually frees your mind up just to kind of wander. And that's what work should be like most of the time, actually. I think you should feel like you're in the shower most of the time at work <laughs> um, rather than feeling like you're drying off and because you got to be somewhere in three seconds. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like that's what I feel. Once you step out of the shower, it's like that's what work mostly feels like. You're cold, you're shivering, you're, you're, you're drying off fast because you got to be somewhere, you got to get your clothes on, you got to commute, got to whatever. But in the shower, you're generally not that way. So we'd like to think of work more as, as the shower, I guess. This feels like a good place to pivot to talk about your thoughts on productivity and why we're essentially doing it backwards. But I have to stop for a minute to hear from our sponsors. And so we'll pick that up when we get back. With Text Expander, you don't have to waste time retyping things you've already worded perfectly. Instead, just use gathered snippets of information using simple keyboard shortcuts or custom abbreviations. You can capture the important pieces of your emails, directions, messages, and data as snippets so you never have to retype them again. From correcting your personal typos and defining industry terms to whole email templates, reusing your info has never been faster and it works everywhere you type. Text Expander is available for Mac, Windows, iPhone, and iPad, and now Chrome too. Listeners can get 20% off their first year by visiting textexpander.com podcast. How cool would it be to grow your practice in your chosen area of law without spending time or money on business development? Now you can with ARAG. ARAG is a leader in legal insurance, and it works a lot like medical insurance. When you become a provider on the ARAG network, you consult with and represent clients for various legal issues, from writing a will to dealing with bankruptcy or divorce. 
Arag does the rest, seriously. They'll connect you with new clients, they'll pay you directly, they'll even collect client feedback and share it with you so you can keep growing your business. Visit araglegal.com slash lawyerist, that's A-R-A-G legal.com slash lawyerist to join the network for no fee and start growing your practice. And it is all about the growth. In fact, more than 90% of Arag members say they are more likely to consult with an attorney when something goes up than if they didn't have legal insurance. Check it out at araglegal.com slash lawyerist. That's A-R-A-G legal.com slash lawyerist. There's more to answering a phone call than just pronouncing your name correctly. And I think that's what sets Ruby apart from all the other receptionist services out there. I've been lucky enough to meet a lot of people who work at Ruby, and from top to bottom, it's full of the kind of people you'd love to spend time with. I guess it's something in the coffee they serve. And after all, when someone calls your firm, that means they are going to be spending time with your receptionist. You may think you get to make a first impression when you pick up the phone, but that's not how it works. Maybe your receptionist is just on the call for a minute or two, but that's all it takes to form a first impression. So it's a good idea to make sure your receptionist is the kind of person you'd want your callers to spend time with. It could be the difference between a big case and a big fail. Don't worry, Ruby can handle pronouncing your name right. They'll also help you make a great first impression. And now Ruby can even help you connect with clients right on your website with 24-7 live online chat. You can find out more about Ruby receptionists and how to make a great first impression at callruby.com slash lawyeristpod. Okay, Jason, so I left with a teaser. I try not to do that, but I tried to leave a cliffhanger there for people. And um, we were talking about work-life balance and what's wrong with that thing. And I, I think that maybe leads us right into a discussion of your thoughts on productivity, which is that most of us have the idea of productivity, which is to get more done exactly wrong. And maybe you can say more about what we ought to be doing instead. Right. I think people tend to kind of keep score and they look at like they make a long list of things they need to do and they kind of feel like they're being productive if they're busy. And some jobs are about busy work and, you know, jumping between things back and forth. That is the job description for some jobs. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of jobs would probably benefit from, from the opposite, which is having just one or two things to do in a given day and go all in on those and focus yourself and not feel like, well, at the end of the day, I only got two things done feeling bad about that. You should feel really good about that. Hopefully you got those things done well. You're able to dig in, dive in completely into those things. It's very rare these days that people get to get into something completely, especially with the advent of real-time chat being one of the ways that a lot of companies are, are communicating these days, Oh yeah, which, which is really destructive, I think, because you're forced to keep an eye on this moving conveyor belt of conversation all day long. And oftentimes it's, it's a dozen conveyor belts. And so it's very hard to get into something completely because you're going to feel like you're missing out on this discussion that's happening in real time right now. And if you're not there, you can't say anything and it's going to pass you by. It's like, it's very hard to be complete about anything when that's going on in the background. So I think that this sense of busyness, paying attention to millions of different things all day and feeling like you're getting a lot done, it, it tends to be fool's gold, essentially. I mean, you're set up to be more intentional where you, A, try and figure out what you can get done with the time you have, not try to accomplish as much as possible, period. And B, you know, calm things down so that you can focus on that stuff and get it done and not be distracted by all the shit that crops up throughout the day. Yes, and then sometimes things crop up, right? Something happens, shit happens, like they say. And, and like you, sometimes you got to bounce around. I'm not suggesting that I'm meditating all day, you know, with my legs <laughs> crossed. Like I'm, I'm working on things, absolutely. But I'm trying to be as, as all in on those things specifically. And that means not all – you can't be all in on something for five minutes. Like that doesn't – you need to gradually get into something. In rework, we talk about this. I don't think we talk about it much, and it doesn't have to be crazy at work. But in rework, I think we talked about how sleep and work are very similar. Mm -hmm. If somebody is interrupted all night long while they're sleeping, nobody would look at that night's sleep and go, oh, they got a good night's sleep. 
they'd say they got a bad night's sleep. You know, you're up a bunch, you know, whatever. It's, it's not good night's sleep, you know. And yet our work days are we're being bounced around and tossed around so much. And if you look at that objectively, I would say that's not a good day's work either if you're if you're all over the place, just like a good night's sleep wouldn't be if you're all over the place. You need time to get into sleep, you know, sleep rhythms. You need REM sleep and deep sleep and these things are phases and they take time to get into and they take time to stay in and they, they need to kind of go through the whole phase in order for them to be useful. I think work's very similar. You don't just sit down and do great work. You sit down and you slowly get into work. Mm-hmm. And then hopefully you get into a phase where you're uninterrupted for a while and you can actually get, get really good work done, just like you can get really good sleep done when you're uninterrupted and you have nice deep sleep. So it's very similar in those in those regards. So I think the multitasking thing is, is very difficult to actually pan out. Oh, totally. Here's where I kind of wonder though, your software teams can obviously decide what's the priority and work on it and decide what to work on with this sprint or the next one. I think lawyers might be more like, say, your ops team or where like there are a lot of demands on the lawyer's time that actually aren't optional, right? Like you don't get to push out your court dates or... You know, your if your client says that something has to be done by such and such a date, that may actually be a hard deadline, and then they may call up with a surprise, or your opponent serves a motion on you or something. And I wonder, like, there are absolutely pieces of that that are just hard to turn down those things that crop up throughout your day and week and then prioritize them against the other stuff. No question. And you can only do what you can do within reason. I mean, again, like there are things that come up during the day that I have to deal with that I wish I didn't have to or, mm-hmm. or things that surprise me. And you, you just do, you deal. But the, I think the thing is, is that what you try and do is create environments where those are exceptions. Now, in your world, you know, we don't have clients like you might have clients or mm-hmm. like an attorney might have clients. But we used to have clients. Before we were a software company, we were a web design firm. Now, I'm not going to suggest that web design is important as, as legal proceedings. Um, <laughs> and like there's real criticality no in your work. There might, <laughs> there might not be in web design. But I remember back then, you know, a client might email you at 10 o'clock, like demanding something or asking for something that they need tonight because for whatever, because they need for tomorrow. But at some point, it's unreasonable to ask somebody at 10 o'clock at night for something tomorrow morning. It just is unreasonable to do that. And a lot of design firms continue to give into that because they feel like, well, the client's paying me. Therefore, the client owns me 24-7. I just don't think that's true. I think you have to set reasonable expectations. I think most people appreciate reasonable expectations and know that they have there's lives outside of work. And you cannot be on call all the time. Now, again, legal situation might be different. And and I I, I know, like, I'm not a lawyer, but of course we have them. And I I know there's been moments when I've emailed a lawyer late at night for something. Um, But I've really tried to be a lot more intentional about that over the last few years, in fact, not putting people in a position where they need to feel like they need to respond to me immediately. If there's a true emergency or I truly, truly, absolutely need something because something special came up out of nowhere, okay. But if I just conveniently want something now, I'm like, wait, I should stop myself. Do I need this now or can I just wait till tomorrow morning? Like, what do I need at 9 p.m. that I can't wait for 9 a.m.? It's kind of like, you know, I think we... I don't think this is at all unique to law, but it's the Friday afternoon, you know, the shitstorm of email. Yes. Um, you know, everybody is trying to clear off their desks and push it on other people's on Friday afternoon. And over time, I've finally been willing to just say, you know what, I'm going to snooze all those emails till Monday because unless the cops are showing up at my door. <laughs> right. It's going to be like, all right. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I'm fine. We're just going to snooze those. They'll pop up on my radar on Monday afternoon and I'll deal with them then. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it is just knowing that you can actually do that. And if you do it, 
once mm-hmm. and you realize, oh my God, the world didn't, like the sky didn't fall, the world didn't end, I didn't get fired, like no, whatever, like it's going to be okay. You just need to have the, the courage, I think, to try that once and recognize that, hey, it's going to be all right. Things are going to be fine. And hey, maybe you have some spare time on Sunday because you just have some spare time and you don't mind answering emails for 30 minutes because it's your choice. That's different. That's okay compared to being forced or feeling an obligation to do so on other people's time just because they asked you for something. So personally, I've been more mindful about asking for things uh, in off hours from other people mm-hmm. and also recognizing the power dynamic at play here. So if, let's say you're a lawyer and I'm hiring you and I ask you a question. Well, in your mind, you might be like, well, he's paying me. I, I owe him an answer immediately. That's I didn't really want the answer immediately. I just happened to email you at eight o'clock at night on a Friday because that's when I had a moment, you know. So so a big part of this too is just recognizing what it's like. Well, when, that's a power dynamic as like a CEO to an employee as well, or as the, the boss to a manager to an employee. Yeah. Absolutely. Which is why it's interesting. In Basecamp, the product, we have a feature called work can wait. And this is a feature that every employee has control over. Everybody who uses Basecamp has control over this themselves. Nobody can set your own work can wait schedule. And the work can wait feature is as follows. It's a schedule that lets you bookend your work hours. So you can say Monday through Friday, work from nine to five. Outside of those hours, Basecamp will not send me notification, not send me an email, not send me a ping, not buzz my phone, nothing. It'll basically, quote, hold my calls until my next workday starts. And that's a way to protect Everybody from those outside impulses that are not necessarily intentional, but someone else might have maybe they picked up their kids from school or took a field trip, whatever, and they're going to put a few hours of work in at night from like eight to 10 because that's just the time they took two hours off during the day. Oh my God. I didn't know about this setting. We use Basecamp to produce this podcast um, with Legal Talk Network, and I'm changing my work and wait settings right now. (laughs) Okay. So, So the cool thing about this is that sometimes people's Work is shifted for other reasons. Mm-hmm. The problem is it puts a burden on the other people who don't know that. And now they get some message at eight o'clock at night and they expect that that person expects a response. But in fact, that's not the case. So anyway, I'm trying to be more mindful of it. I think other people can be more mindful of it. Certainly if you're being, you know, papers are served or what, like, okay, then you, you call your lawyer whenever it is. But most things are not that. But I think it's really cool that you've built that in. And like my iPhone has a do not disturb setting on it too, which I think we're starting to recognize that you can build that into your product. And maybe this is a good point to pivot to one of, I, I wish I would have brought this up earlier, but one of your core messages in the book is to treat your company as a product. And, and what your company is, is an offering to your employees and to your potential clients and customers, and that you have to build it over time, which I think is important because your book, I don't mean this as a criticism, but there is a lot of stuff in there that is easier said than done. And in order to get it done, you need to work on your company and to figure out how it's going to work. How do you think of your company as a product? How do you, do you iterate on your company as well? Yeah, we do. So if you think about, if you want to make anything better, anything at all, you're going to iterate on it probably. In product development, this is pretty obvious. I think in a lot of other areas it is too. Now you can also make something worse by iterating on it. You can take a a great letter that you wrote and screw it up. You Mm -hmm. know, there's a lot of things you can do, but for the most part, iteration hopefully makes things better. And um, I think a lot of companies end up, they launch, they've got their situation, they've got their five people or 10 people or however many people they launch with. And they sort of set in stone how they're going to be and how they're going to work. And some of these policies change over time as they grow, whatever. But a lot of companies aren't really reflective upon like how they actually work. What do they actually do from day to day? And how is it working? Is it working well? Is it not working well? Like we would know if you're using a product and the product doesn't work well, you'd know you're like, oh, this is there's a bug in here. Or this is broken or this is frustrating. 
I don't think people have the same critical eye towards their actual work methods at work and how the work gets done at a particular company. So for us, we look at our company as if it was a product. What are the bugs in the product? Like what is hard to do at Basecamp? What is hard to do the way we work. Are do you we actually missing? have a bug tracker for Basecamp, the company? Uh, great question. Cool. <laughs> Not technically. Yeah. We kind of do. We have a to-do list of things and complaints and whatnot, but it's not really, but it's a good way of thinking about it, actually. Yeah. I like that framework. But just <laughs> thinking about like what is working, what isn't working, what's hard, what's complicated, what's easy, what can we improve on? Are we happy with the way we're working? Yeah, we got this project done in time, but like how does everyone feel about themselves afterwards? You know, things like that. So we're constantly trying to reflect on that, including benefits and salary stuff. Like, for example, something we, we changed a few years ago. We used to, like every pretty much every company, uh, used to pay people based on their negotiation skills, mm-hmm. essentially. You know, people would come up for a raise and whatever they would get would depend on how good of a negotiator they are. That's kind of how people get paid. And look, you know, that's just how it's done most places, but it's actually a pretty terrible way to do things. Uh, if you ask people if they like to negotiate for anything, most people would say, no, I, I don't want to negotiate for a house or a car. Like, I don't want to pay the full price, but I'm uncomfortable negotiating. I, I'm not a negotiator. Like, that's not what I do. It's it's a conflict. People don't like it. Yet, we all are basically asked to negotiate for our salaries, and it's unfair. So what we decided to do was standardize salaries on a scale based on, for example, if you're a programmer, you could be a junior programmer, a programmer, a senior programmer, lead programmer, principal programmer. Um, and there's these different tiers with different responsibilities that are attached to each one. And each one of those has a set salary. So everybody who's a lead programmer gets paid the exact amount. You cannot get paid a penny more or a penny less than anybody else in that exact role who's doing the same job as you are. Hmm. And this just eliminates the need to negotiate. It also, we're also part of this is we pay the top 10% in the industry. So we're, we're tracking the industry pay and we're making sure we're paying within the top 10%. So there's only a few companies you could probably get paid more at. So we're, we're kind of eliminating that and then not forcing people to negotiate their salaries. They have to maybe negotiate their skills and make a case for themselves. But that's different than I think negotiating money. People are not really particularly good at negotiating money, but right. they're certainly okay for advocating for their, for their abilities. And so that's something we just did a few years ago based on this feeling that it wasn't fair what we were doing to people, making them negotiate. And that was a reflection. We looked at ourselves and we, we'd heard some from some people and there was some discomfort around certain things. And we decided that we we're going to make that change. And that's what we did. And I think I remember from the book, you saying that, you know, yeah, you're able to pay the top 10% now. You weren't always, and you paid what you could as well as you could for where you, you were as a company. And so over time, you've iterated up to the top and, and made it work better. Yeah, exactly. You know, these are things, like you said, if you read the book, it's like easier said than done. We haven't been doing all these things for the 20 years we've been in business. You know, these are things we've been layering on and learning about as we go. Which is the whole point. That's the whole point. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And and you can only do what you can do and you shouldn't put yourself at risk. I mean, our benefit package is, is, is ridiculous in that it's probably the best you can find, but we couldn't have afforded to do all these things even 12 years ago. So, you do what you can as you go, but you're always reflecting and reviewing what you're doing and saying like, well, can we do more right now? Can we do more than we used to be able to do? Can we afford more? Are there new people in place? Are there new skills in place that we didn't have before? How can we constantly iterate on our company to make it a better product for ourselves? Because at the end of the day, the company is the product that people use to do their work. So it's got to be good. It's got to be the best thing you make. I want to have like a compound question. So I'm going to try and not ask like a 10 minute question, but get at this idea. Your company is remote and you address remote work and accountability a bit. And I'd like to get a little more out of you on that. So at one point you say, yeah, yeah, we're remote. We don't care what anybody's working on as long as they get their stuff done. And making sure people get done is the job of the manager. 
And you also talk about how it's the boss's job to model, you know, the, the expectations, right? If you don't take vacations, then other people are going to understand that they aren't supposed to. But when I put those two, two things together, one of the things that I've personally been struggling with is like, how do I model that when I'm on, I'm on and I'm getting a lot of shit done for people who aren't there with me, right? Like, I'm totally on board with the traditional, you know, if you're in the office, you're being productive is baloney. Yeah. Um, but I'm also trying to figure out, like, if I'm not in the office, how do I make sure that other people who aren't in the office understand that the expectation is you're still supposed to be focused and working for about eight hours a day most days? Well, I think the way to do that is to reinforce what you're reviewing them on or, or judging. I, I don't like that word, but <laughs> essentially that, which is like we look at the work. So, you know, butts and seats doesn't mean you're doing any work. Absolutely you know, not. being in front of a computer typing away doesn't mean you're doing any work. Like work is production, you know, and output essentially. I don't mean to like scale it back that, that far because there's more to it than that. There's culture. There's a whole bunch of other things and, and how you treat people, which is a big part of doing great work and, you know, being a person that other people want to work with, that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, we look at the work and it doesn't matter uh, if you're local or remote, the work speaks for itself. So mm -hmm. if you're a designer, like I look at your design work, I look at the interface design work you do. I look at the thinking behind it. I ask you the same questions, whether or not you're local or remote. It doesn't matter to me because I'm looking at pixels. I'm not, I'm, this isn't even real anyway. It's like, <laughs> I'm looking at this on a computer screen, you know, and the computer screen is from anywhere. So, and the same thing is true for writing and the same thing is true for programming and the same thing is true for data analysis and all these different things that we do in customer service and how you respond to people and how kind and empathetic you are and all these things, you can look at that. You don't look at the person. You can look at that. And then you also look at the person. Again, like I was saying earlier, are you somebody that other people want to work with? Are you helpful? Are you all these other things too? But in our line of work, at least, proximity has nothing to do with it. Clearly, there's some businesses where you, know, you need to be there. If you run a restaurant, people need to be at the restaurant. If you're yeah. in retail, people need to be at the store. You know, but information work, writing, designing, creative work, legal work, these kinds of things, unless, of course, you need to meet with a client or something or you need to whatever, a lot of this stuff can be done from anywhere. And I, I'd rather it be done from wherever people feel most comfortable doing it than for me to tell them they can only be, they have to do it here because I feel most comfortable with them doing it here. It's like, I want them to be comfortable, not me necessarily. I mean, to be clear, I know lawyers who do video chats with their clients from like Bhutan. So yeah, <laughs> there you go. And it, it's, you know, it's 95% as good. Yeah. 5% better maybe mm -hmm. in person, but unnecessary most of the time yeah. for sure. And, and I guess along with this and some of the other things that we've been talking about, like, you know, focus time and stuff and chat, your company favors asynchronous communication, which everybody who's a techie immediately understands what I'm talking about. Basically email, right? Respond on your own time. Yeah. Uh, we don't use email internally. We use Basecamp, but it's the same kind of concept, right? Yeah. yeah. Which is kind of more long form writing. You write, someone gets it later, looks it over, responds when they're ready to. That's the idea of asynchronous communication versus Real-time, which is like meetings are real-time communication. Chat is typically real-time communication. There's a time and a place for those kinds of things. But I don't believe they should be the primary method of communication. They're very distracting, very interruptive, and it's very difficult to actually get work done when you're being pulled in a bunch of different directions right now all the time, especially when the discussion you're having right now isn't about right now. Mm -hmm. And most conversations that you have right now are not about right now. So, for example, if you pull six or seven people into a meeting to talk about something next week or two weeks from now or three weeks from now to prepare for something like 
you might be better off simply writing that up in detail <laughs> yeah. and disseminating it and letting people read it and absorb it. And then you can ask questions about it. And maybe you do need to have a meeting about certain things, right? But a lot of things are probably better written down. There's also now a formal record of that thing so other people can get to it if they need to later. You know, if someone missed the meeting, they're on the same footing as someone who was there. If you have a new employee join, this is one of the things that people, I think, miss a lot, which is the value of writing things down. You have new employees who come into a business. And how do they get up to speed on things? Like oral tradition is not really a great way to really get them up to speed on exactly what happened. Compared to if they can go, like, for example, if you join Basecamp, you join our company, our message board in the in the Basecamp HQ, which is the sort of the, the internal intranet for our company, has hundreds of messages written and hundreds of comments on those messages that is the full history of why we made decisions, who made the decision, what were the ideas behind these decisions. Hmm. And people can refer to them and they can read up. Like we just had a new data analyst join. And she was able to join the data project where our previous data analyst had written down every you know, analysis, the reasons for them, all these things that normally would have been maybe discussed in a meeting, but then have been ephemeral because they're kind of gone. Yeah. And it, it's almost impossible to keep up on that in like campfire slack. You, you can't. It's, yeah. yeah. Well, you're going to read. Seriously, you're going to go back and read <laughs> three years of transcripts. And, and like the other problem is, is that like, Slack and chat tools, they don't end. So there's no sense of the topics of a discussion, really. Right. You know, if you go to a message board with, with or, or email for most people, which is most, what most people are comfortable with, there's, there's subjects. And at some level, it gives you a sense of context that every email on this thread is about this topic or this subject. And it's right. just an organizational principle that helps you wrap your head around things versus just reading a transcript that never ends. I mean, we started talking about asynchronous communication with Ben Balter at GitHub. Mm -hmm. And since then, I realized that I didn't quite buy it. And now I'm, I think I'm understanding it better. But a lot of us tend to treat all communication media as synchronous, right? We respond to emails immediately. We, um, we don't, we listen to voicemails and we immediately call somebody back. We, right. uh, like, I get how chat is more demanding than email, but I think being asynchronous is as much a mindset as anything else where you have to treat it like, yeah, my email came in, but I can let it sit and be thoughtful about how I want to respond before I do. Yes, because you can turn email into a real-time you know, communications mm -hmm. platform. And I Absolutely suppose you right. can turn chat into an asynchronous platform if you're disciplined about it, although it's harder. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So I do think it is a mindset. I think it's sort of just, it's the calming down of, of, of your mind, essentially, and going like, okay, yeah, there's probably things waiting for me to read, but I'm, I'm working on other things right now. And I'll get I'll get to those things when I'm ready to. And people take natural breaks all day long during work. You know, you, that's a natural, normal thing to do. So when you do that, then you go check on something and see if people need your attention. But this idea that, um, you know, I hear a ding and I have to stop what I'm doing. It's just this weird Pavlovian thing, which I think is really unhealthy. So it, and I know it takes time, but the thing that's that's amazing about it is that if you give it a couple weeks and you really slow yourself down and go, I'm just going to check email twice a day or three times a day or whatever it might be, you find out that like it's okay, everything's actually okay, and guess what? You're you're calmer. You can actually now triage email in a way where you can get your head into it, just like I was saying, you want to get your head into the other work you're doing. Well, email is a kind of work too. And when you're like, okay, I'm going to set aside an hour now just to do email and not try and do a bunch of other things, you can actually get through that email faster and better as well. So it is a mindset. It takes practice, but so does everything that you want to be good at. Like people are like, it's hard. Well, yeah, it's hard. So is playing guitar. So is running a marathon. So is 
learning law. So is anything, but it's worth it, hopefully. And I think it's just about practicing and, and being intentional about it and also wanting to get better at this. Is the secret behind it doesn't have to be crazy at work or to building a calm company, is this essentially the the business version of mindfulness? Maybe. it's <laughs> Mindfulness is one of those things also that's kind of, I don't even know what it means anymore. It's okay. So, well, that's what I'm wondering if, if you were intentionally going about like trying to turn mindfulness into a business practice or not. <laughs> Well, I do think, I mean, I think it's a good term in general, like yeah. just to be mindful of the impact of something, whatever it is that you're doing. Um, I know of course there's, there's mindfulness meditation. That's a, that's not really where we're going here, but I do think it's important to think about when I do something, I'm doing it oftentimes to somebody else. So if I'm emailing someone at nine o'clock, I'm doing something to them. You know, I'm saying, Hey, there's something waiting for you. And if you have notifications on, you're going to get a ping on your phone. And I should just be thinking about what impact am I having on someone else's potential life? And can I just wait till the morning to do that? Yeah. You know, things like that. So maybe thoughtful is, a, is maybe a, like a less, I think some people might hear mindful and run away from it. Like, oh, oh, that <laughs> yeah, I don't thing, want that to you know? happen either. But <laughs> yeah, just being thoughtful and respectful. It's really about being respectful of other people's time and attention because you want them to be respectful of yours as well. So it's a little bit of, you know, give and take there, I think. That's kind of how I would look at it. My takeaway, you know, if I try to back up and take your book and compare it to what I know about lawyers building law firms, it is that um, there is plenty of room to create more calmness in every company, even if, and it sounds like this is true at base of camp too, um, my guess is that you have teams or departments that are less calm than others because of there are different demands on those teams or departments or employees based on the work they do. Like, you you know, we, we haven't talked about your thoughts on deadlines and why most of them are BS. But I think there are some real deadlines that create less calmness than there would be in other departments. But you can always work towards more calmness. Yeah, no question. You know, but part of it, too, is like, for example, our operations team, technical operations, they're going to be less calm probably than a lot of other parts of the company. Mm -hmm. Because if something goes wrong with their work or something goes wrong to their work, we might have you know, a million customers who can't access Basecamp. Like yeah, if the, the server's the, down, you don't get to put that off till Monday. Right, right. So <laughs> that's stressful, obviously. And that can happen. Sometimes it can be out of your control. But mm -hmm. it's also about thinking about, you know, knowing that you're going to have bad luck. Bad luck's going to strike. Like how, how well prepared can you be for that bad luck? And how many, how much contingency can you put in place? And how many, you know, what kind of systems can you have that are redundant in a way where, where a, a piece of bad luck won't drive you into a, a, a manic, you know, panic, basically. Mm -hmm. So, I think, yes, there are variables outside that you don't control and understanding what those are is important, but also understanding what kind of systems and environment can you put in place to help prevent things that don't have to be tragic emergencies from being tragic emergencies. Again, you can't get rid of them all, but I know there's a lot of environments out there where, where people don't even think about improving the environment. And so mm -hmm. they constantly are running into these, these messes all, all the time. And and they're like, well, it just, it's going to be crazy or it's crazy. It's like, well, maybe if you looked at your systems a little bit and figured out like what's causing things to be crazy, like are there patterns here? Can you remedy some of these? Can you fix some of these things? You might be able to carve out some more calm time for yourself. So you can't play victim all the time with this stuff. Some of these things, of course, you are the victim of unforeseen circumstances, but you can certainly work on the environment. And the environment can help prevent some of these things from happening. Or when they happen, you don't have to, to feel like this is the first time this ever happened. We never we never considered this. We don't know what to do. And now we're struggling to figure it out versus like, oh, we knew this could be a possibility. We've drilled this problem before. We fire drilled this. And now we know what to do to fix it. So I can be calm in the remedy. I don't have to be chaotic or crazy in the remedy. I think that's the other thing. It's just 
approaching these situations with calmness, even though things went wrong. I like that. And I think that's a good place to end. So Jason Fried, thank you so much for being with us today. And we'll obviously have a link to your book in the show notes for people who want to check it out. I'm glad we could do this. Thanks for having me on. And the other thing I would encourage people to do actually is yeah. we have a, a podcast, which is also worth listening to. It's at rework.fm. A lot of the things we're talking about today, we present on a biweekly basis as well there. So that would be cool if you like what we're talking about here. We will make sure to put that link in the show notes too. Thanks so much, Jason. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The Lawyerist Podcast is produced with help from Lindsay Calhoun and edited by Paul Fisher. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. Mm-hmm.